Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Nisa Fraser, and I am a third-year pediatric resident at LAC USC Medical Center in Los Angeles. Now, let's get to today's case. So we will be going through case 58 on page 438 of your Beyond the Pearls pediatric morning report book. And this is a case of an 11-year-old female with new onset difficulty in swallowing and speaking. So let's get started. We have an 11-year-old female who's brought into the emergency department by her parents for difficulty swallowing, an extremely nasal voice, and recent difficulty in comprehension of her speech. There is no history of trauma, ingestions, or fevers, and she is fully vaccinated. Let's discuss what can cause difficulty swallowing and a change in the ability to speak normally. Causes of dysphagia include esophageal foreign body, caustic substance ingestion, and infections. Given this patient's history, these causes are less likely. Oral pharyngeal infections and central nervous disorders, such as meningitis, encephalitis, or cerebral abscess, can impair consciousness in the gag reflex, resulting in dysphagia. But these infections generally present with fever, behavioral changes, and or confusion. Now, dysarthria may be caused by neuromuscular impairment, secondary to a stroke, or a brain tumor, or some disorder like cerebral palsy or myasthenia gravis. Here's a basic science pearl. Swallowing entails a complex set of actions, including the bulbar muscles, which include the muscles of the jaw and the oropharynx. Oropharyngeal muscle weakness can cause impaired swallowing, which is referred to as dysphagia, as well as dysarthria, which is a change in the speech quality, often due to palatal muscle dysfunction. The nasal speech quality, referred to as dysphonia, results from the involvement of the laryngeal muscles. Dysarthria is often associated with dysphagia because both conditions frequently involve the same muscles and structures. So let's get back to this patient. Her difficulty swallowing solids and liquids is episodic and has evolved over six months with an associated sensation of food being stuck in her chest. After eating, she has a cough, hoarse voice, throat pain, and chest pain. She is unable to speak in full sentences during these episodes. Her symptoms worsen in the evening. Between these episodes, she feels well, and her mother notes that her daughter's upper eyelids started to droop about five years ago. She denies any recent travel and takes no medications. So what is the significance of her symptoms worsening in the evening specifically? Diurnal variation is a term to describe the change in symptoms during the day. It suggests the increasing fatigability with continued use of her muscles during the day and with exertion, which is concerning for a neuromuscular disorder. Drooping of the upper eyelid is referred to as ptosis. The principal muscle involved in controlling the upper eyelid is the levator palpebrae. Ptosis can be congenital or acquired. Congenital ptosis is often unilateral and is due to the absence or hypoplasia of the levator palpebrae superioris muscle. Acquired cases can be mechanical, neurologic, or myogenic in cause. Mechanical causes include inflammation, infections, and masses. 
Neurologic conditions affecting the muscle, neuromuscular junction, cranial nerve, or brainstem can also cause ptosis. Such conditions include a cranial nerve 3 palsy, which can also cause diplopia and ophthalmoplegia, as well as Horner syndrome. Neuromuscular junction disorders include myasthenia gravis, Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, and botulinum toxin. Examples of myogenic causes are mitochondrial myopathy, oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy, and myotonic dystrophy. Here's the basic science pearl. Horner syndrome is a triad of ipsilateral ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis due to the disruption of the three-neuron oculosympathetic chain. So what is the differential diagnosis for muscle weakness? The definition of weakness is a decreased ability to move muscles against resistance voluntarily and actively. The differential diagnosis of weakness includes upper and lower motor neuron disease and muscle disease, or myopathy. Upper motor neuron weakness is present in lesions of the cerebral cortex and the corticospinal tracts above the anterior horn cell. Common acute findings in upper motor neuron lesions include decreased spinal cord reflexes and hypotonia, which involve over weeks into chronic spasticity, hyperreflexia, and the Babinski sign. Cerebral cortex lesions includes intracranial hemorrhage, stroke, brain tumors, tots paresis after a seizure, and hemiplegic migraines. Spinal cord lesions involving the descending corticospinal tracts include trauma, tumors, paraspinal infection or inflammation, and transverse myelitis. Lesions involving the anterior horn cell, peripheral nerve, neuromuscular junction, or muscle cause lower motor neuron weakness. Lower motor neuron signs manifest as muscle weakness, hypotonia, and decreased spinal cord reflexes. Common causes of anterior horn lesions, which often include fasciculations, include polymyelitis and infections with other enteroviruses. Peripheral nerve causes include Guillain-Barre syndrome, peripheral nerve toxins such as heavy metals, and acute intermittent porphyria. Botulism, myasthenia gravis, and organophosphate or carbamate poisoning, and tick paralysis are causes of neuromuscular junction disorders. Muscle causes for weakness include rhabdomyolysis and myositis. So back to the patient. On physical exam, her extraocular muscles are intact and her pupils are round and reactive to light and accommodation with intact corneal reflexes. Though her vision is grossly normal, she does have bilateral ptosis. She is unable to close her eyes or raise her eyebrows against resistance and is unable to maintain a sustained upward gaze. She is coughing during the examination and her speech is hoarse and dysphonic. She has a poor gag reflex and she is able to turn her head against resistance with muscle strength of 4 out of 5 in her bilateral upper extremities and 5 out of 5 in her bilateral lower extremities. Her sensation is grossly intact to crude touch throughout. Reflexes are 2 plus and her gait is normal and she has a negative Babinski. So how does her neurologic examination help narrow our differential? The absence of a Babinski sign, lack of spasticity, normal deep tendon reflexes, and normal higher cortical function. Instead, the patient's bilateral ptosis, poor gag, dysphonia, and dysphagia, as well as the decreased upper extremity muscle strength, are all suggestive of a lower motor neuron disorder. It is important to distinguish between baseline and persistent weakness versus diurnal symptoms and fatigability, the latter of which are more specific for a neuromuscular junction disorder. 
The inability to close her eyes and raise her eyebrows against resistance indicates a weakness with fatigability, which is confirmed by the inability to maintain a sustained upward gaze. Therefore, her examination findings and history of ptosis as the presenting symptom are consistent with a neuromuscular junction disorder, specifically myosthenia gravis. Other lower motor neuron processes, such as Miller-Fisher variant of Guillain-Barré syndrome, which cause ophthalmoplegia and ataxia, other neuropathies and myopathies, do not usually have fluctuating or diurnal symptoms and fatigability on examination. Myasthenia gravis is categorized into pure ocular or generalized variants, depending on the affected areas. Ocular myasthenia gravis is more common in prepubertal children, and generalized weakness is more common in postpubertal adolescents and adults. Other symptoms of myasthenia gravis include dysphagia, dysarthria, extremity weakness, dysphonia, and respiratory failure in the absence of visible respiratory distress. A quick basic science pearl is that the most common symptom in myasthenia gravis is actually ptosis. Another thing to be aware of is that rapidly progressive neuromuscular junction symptoms actually suggest botulism and organophosphate poisoning. So our diagnosis is myasthenia gravis. What is the pathophysiology? Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune condition wherein autoantibodies attack the postsynaptic membrane at the neuromuscular junction. The most common antibody seen in myasthenia gravis works by binding to the acetylcholine receptor. This antibody binds to the alpha and beta subunits of the receptor, leading to internalization and breakdown of the acetylcholine receptor. The antibodies could also directly impair the function of the acetylcholine receptor by simply binding to it. Here's another basic science pearl. Acetylcholine is the primary neurotransmitter at the neuromuscular junction. Another antibody implicated in myasthenia gravis, but less commonly found, is an immunoglobulin G, or IgG, autoantibody to muscle-specific kinase, which targets striated muscle protein. So ideally, which test should be performed clinically once the suspicion for myasthenia gravis is raised? Serologic antibody tests should be sent, and a bedside test using edrophonium, which is a short-acting acetylcholine inhibitor that prolongs the presence of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular synapse, and thus allows for increased muscle contraction. And this is used to elicit a transient improvement in observable or measurable signs, such as ptosis, severe ophthalmoparesis, and dysphonia. A positive edrophonium test supports but does not confirm the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. Edrophonium enhances the muscarinic effects of acetylcholine, producing bradycardia and bronchospasm. Cardiopulmonary monitoring should be used in this test, and atropine should be immediately available at the bedside. Let's discuss some other tests that could be used to diagnose myasthenia gravis. Placing an ice bag on the eyelids of a patient with ptosis with resulting transient improvement is suggestive of myasthenia gravis. This is because of the slowing of the breakdown of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. Electrophysiologic tests, including repetitive nerve stimulation and single fiber electromyography, are less sensitive but more specific, allowing for diagnosis and confirmation. The latter test is much more sensitive in both the ocular and generalized forms of myasthenia gravis. Finally, 85% of patients will have elevated anti-acetylcholine receptor antibody titers, which is predictive of a more severe clinical course. 
So back to our patient. The patient's edrophonium test is positive. Serum tests show detectable anti-acetylcholine receptor antibody levels, confirming the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. So what further workup is required now that she has been diagnosed with myasthenia gravis? Patients with myasthenia gravis are often found to also have thymic abnormalities, suggesting that the thymus may have a role in the pathogenesis of the disease. In fact, 60-70% to of patients will have thymic hyperplasia, and 10-12% to have a thymoma. In patients who have a thymoma, there is a higher remission rate if the patient undergoes thymectomy, but this is in adult studies. Even in most patients without a thymoma, a thymectomy is thought to improve the long-term prospects of remission or control of the disease. On further investigation into the patient's past medical history, it reveals that she has been prescribed albuterol for presumed asthma due to a chronic cough, as well as having been given antibiotics for pneumonia three times in the last five months. She was also admitted to the intensive care unit recently due to pneumonia that required intubation for impending respiratory failure. So are the diagnoses of asthma and pneumonia related to the patient's myasthenia gravis diagnosis? So the patient has oral pharyngeal muscle weakness, likely leading to multiple episodes of microaspirations. Most of these episodes result in little more than a chronic cough, which in this case has led to a misdiagnosis of asthma. Some of the aspiration events were significant enough to result in pneumonia. One pneumonia was associated with respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, which likely indicates an undiagnosed myasthenia crisis. What is myasthenia crisis? Let's talk about it. Myasthenia crisis is a life-threatening condition in which a patient's respiratory muscles are so weak that the patient requires intubation and mechanical ventilation to ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation. A crisis can be triggered by infection and by other stressors such as surgery, pregnancy, childbirth, and medications. Of patients with myasthenia gravis, 10 to 20% will experience a myasthenic crisis at some point during the course of disease. Here's the basic science in clinical pearl. Suspect myasthenic crisis in a patient with myasthenia gravis when they present with dyspnea, dysphagia, poor respiratory effort, and paradoxical abdominal breathing, in addition to a low vital capacity. The mainstays of treatment of myasthenic crisis include plasma exchange and IVIG. Both therapies take effect within days, but the effects only last a few weeks, so patients are often started on glucocorticoids as well. Plasma exchange removes antibodies from the circulation, but without immunomodulatory treatment, the antibody levels will rise within a few weeks. The exact mechanism of action of IVIG in myasthenia gravis is unknown. However, possible mechanisms include neutralization of antibodies and effects on the complement system. Here's a clinical pearl. Vital capacity measures the maximum amount of air that a person can expel from the lungs after a maximal inhalation. Thus, it indicates the severity of respiratory muscle involvement in neuromuscular disease. In general, a vital capacity less than 20 milliliters per kilogram is an indication of impending respiratory failure in patients with myasthenia gravis. So what are the treatment options for myasthenia gravis? Medications for the treatment of myasthenia gravis include anticholinesterases and immunosuppressive agents to manage symptoms and induce remission. The main cholinesterase inhibitor used currently for symptom management is pyridostigmine bromide, which blocks the action of acetylcholinesterase, 
allowing for higher levels of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction that can bind to postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors. Most patients will need immunosuppressive therapy eventually in their clinical course, typically starting with an oral glucocorticoid. Steroid-sparing immunosuppressive agents are not used as frequently in juvenile myasthenia gravis, given their side effect profile, but are generally used for poorly responsive or relapsed patients. A suggested treatment algorithm is shown in the figure of the book. The figure starts to talk about initiating treatment with pyridostigmine and adjusting the dose in response, whether the patient goes into remission or not in remission. If the patient does not go into remission, you have to consider a thymectomy, starting prednisone, and starting a steroid-sparing agent like azathioprine or cyclosporine. If there's an improvement, then great, you can start to initiate a slow steroid taper and or continue a steroid-sparing agent. If no improvement, then you'll have to consider an alternate steroid-sparing agent, um, start periodic IVIG or plasmapheresis, and then definitely consider the thymectomy if it's not already been done. If all these treatments lead to no improvement, you'll have to consider long-term IVIG or plasmapheresis, rituximab, and then cyclophosphamide. In general, if a patient has a severe generalized disease like dysphagia requiring a nasogastric tube support or poor respiratory compromise creating a risk for intubation or anytime they have poor ambulation and unable to get up from a squat or climb stairs, then you'll also consider those other therapies like alternate steroid sparing agents, periodic IVIG or plasmapheresis, and then the thymectomy. So back to our patient. The patient has started on pyridostigmine bromide, but significant symptoms of generalized weakness persist. Therefore, she is also treated with a four-day inpatient course of IVIG and started on an outpatient schedule of prednisone for chronic management of her autoimmune condition. She experiences slow but steady resolution of her fatigue over the next 10 days. She is discharged home with a plan to undergo MRI imaging to evaluate for possible thymoma. So let's summarize all the beyond the pearls. Anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies are more likely to be detected in patients with generalized disease, 85% are positive, than in patients with only ocular symptoms, 50% are positive. Although myasthenia gravis is an acquired autoimmune disorder, the presence of certain HLA antigens are overrepresented and thus suggest a hereditary disposition to developing myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis is commonly associated with other autoimmune diseases, and there are congenital myasthenia gravis syndromes that are due to genetic mutations that impair the function of the neuromuscular junction. Transient myasthenia of the newborn is seen in 10 to 20% of infants born to mothers with seropositive myasthenia gravis. It is due to maternal acetylcholine receptor antibodies that are transferred to the fetus. Symptoms include ptosis, hypotonia, poor feeding, a weak cry, and respiratory failure. Most symptoms ablate within four weeks, but some manifestations may be permanent. Let's summarize this entire case and what we've learned so far. So we had a case of an 11-year-old female who presented with difficulty swallowing, an excessively nasal voice, and difficulty in comprehension of her speech. We found bilateral ptosis, poor gag reflex, and unable to close her eyes or raise her eyebrows against resistance. She also was unable to maintain a sustained upward gaze. Lab results showed an anti-acetylcholine receptor binding antibody that was positive. 
We made the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis and treated the patient with pyridostigmine, IVIG, and oral glucocorticoids. That concludes our case for today. Again, my name is Nisa Fraser. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.